0: doing a series called Foundations here at Crossroads Church. And I don't know if you know how many we've done or how many weeks this has been going on, but today is the final one. Actually, we start today for the final one. This is probably going to be a two-parter today. But we're calling this today The Grand Mission of the Church. And this is going to be, like I said, part one of two. But this is going to conclude our foundation series, and we're going to finish, it's a nail-biter, but right before... Easter and Resurrection Sunday. So here are the foundations that we've gone over, and I want you to look at those. And remember, remember the foundations we've gone through. It's It's been a long series. It's been, I hope, a profound and helpful series for all of us. But these before you are going to be the foundations for our church as we go forward together. We've talked about the gospel of Jesus. We've talked about the sufficiency of Jesus. We talked about the sufficiency of God's word, the sufficiency of God's grace. We talked about the fear of God as a gift. We talked about the new covenant of love in a two-part series. We talked about hallowed be God's name, and last week we spoke about the person, the power, and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And today, we focus our attention upon the church. But before we get there, I'd like to start with an icebreaker, generally, unless I forget that one week. Um, but I want to share with you some what I found some commonly misused words and phrases. Okay, I have ten of them. And I'm going to quiz you. I want you, I'm going to give you the commonly misused word and phrase, and I want you to tell me what is the actual word or phrase, okay? And we'll see if we can get all of these. Now, the first one's a little bit different. It's going to kind of be a freebie. The first one is the word literally. Literally. Has anyone ever heard the word literally misused? Does anyone know what the actual definition of the word literally means? Nobody does? That's probably why. It means what? I was going to say exactly. It means exactly. She said literally means literal. And she's right. It means actual, exact, just as it stands. And I've heard literally, probably like you have, misused many times. Like if I said the phrase, I literally jumped out of my skin. What does that mean? I'm probably dead, right? If you literally jump out of your skin, you are dead. Um, So that's probably, when people say such things, they're probably misusing it. Now I'm going to ask you, okay? I have several words and phrases that I'm going to say, and you let me know what is the actual phrase. Here's one that I've heard misused, and I've even misused this one. It is, for all intensive purposes. Has anyone ever heard that, say it it that way? What is the actual phrase people mean to say? For all intents and purposes. purposes. Maybe you're learning something for the first time. It's not intensive purposes. Okay, so it's intense and purposes. And I've misused that one before, and someone corrected me, and that was awkward. Uh, Actually, I've done a few of these. Uh, Here's another one that I hear often, and I don't want to embarrass somebody, but somebody that is close to me often misuses this one. It's the phrase, I could care less. (laughs) My mom is waving her hand. What do people mean when they say that phrase? What's the actual phrase? I heard it already. I couldn't care less. Because could care less means you do care some. Uh, But couldn't care less means you literally don't care at all. So I think that's what they're going for. Here's another one. etc. Anyone ever heard et cetera used? Now, what do people mean when they say et cetera? And so forth. And the actual pronunciation is et cetera, not ex cetera. And that's when I had to learn the hard way, unfortunately. Et cetera. So now you can't say it backwards, right? You're always going to catch yourself saying it wrong. Et cetera. Here's another one. Tongue and cheek. Tongue and cheek. What do people mean? What's the actual phrase? Tongue in cheek. Tongue in cheek. As if to say, I'm saying something that I don't really mean, or something like that. Not tongue and cheek. Here's another one. Supposedly. Anyone ever heard someone say that? Supposedly? It's like when I say the word sandwich with my children. Um, what do people mean when they say supposedly? Supposedly. supposedly. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, here's another one. Peaked my interest. P-E-A-K-E-D. Peaked my interest. almost like a mountain peak. Like a mountain peak like Mount Washington. Is your interest peaked like it couldn't go higher, or what is the actual spelling of peaked? Does anyone know? P-I-Q-U-E-D. P-I-Q-U-E-D? Good job. It's the same word, or the same, excuse me, the same sounding word, but it's a different word altogether. It's peaked my interest. P-I-Q-U-E-D. Here's another one. Expresso. Anyone ever had espresso? Anyone have espresso this morning? Actually, it's impossible, because there's no such thing. What is the actual word? Espresso. Yeah. No idea why it's it's a lot of S's. Sounds like you have a lisp. Here's another one that I've misused. I have to be a little transparent with you. Okay. And in fact, I got corrected because I once this is really embarrassing to admit, but I once it, I once claimed that it was a doggy dog world. Doggy dog. As in, I don't know what I meant. There's dogs everywhere. What is the actual phrase? Dog eat dog, which doesn't sound better. Why are dogs eating dogs? My phrase sounded a lot better. It's doggy dog. There's dogs everywhere. I don't know what I was going for. And this one I know I've misused because you guys called me on it. In fact, the one week I didn't get any compliments. It was like, you moron. You said the word mooses. Has anyone caught me? I, got, I know you all caught me because you all told me you caught me. I must have said the word mooses and you couldn't. It's, meese. it's meeses. Thank you. Actually, what I was going to say is there's no such thing as plural moose. Now, there's one moose I've heard, and it's in Whitefield, and it keeps circulating in the towns. But there's no such thing as plural moose. So it's not mooses, it's not meese. It's just literally one moose in the entire North Country. Anyways, we have some commonly misused phrases. Unfortunately, to transition us today, there's one that probably supersedes all of them. That's the church. The church is one of those phrases, one of those words that we misuse often. And we're going to talk about what the church is today. And you're going to notice something today, that there's a very strong correlation between the church and the kingdom of God. And that's on purpose. What we're doing here, that we often call church, is supposed to be a sampling, a representation of what goes on in the kingdom of God. And we're hopefully going to understand the proper meaning behind church today, because that's a foundation as we function as a church to know what it is according to the scripture. And so that's our goal today, is to find out, What church is? And this is our four-point outline, and I told you today we're not going to get to all of these. This is going to be a two-parter. So we're going to focus our attention on these first two today. What is the church? We're going to find that in Scripture. And second of all, why do we need the church? Why do we need it? Why does anyone need the church? Next week, Lord willing, we will look at how to become a part of the church, and we will finish on what is our grand mission as being the church. That's our four-point outline. This is going to be our last foundation series before... We transition to something different. But what is the church? Well, I want to start with this as a vaulting point today. And you probably have heard this, this verse before. It comes from Matthew 16, 18. And our Lord Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking to Peter. And if you remember, Peter had a name before his name was Peter. Does you remember what, remember what his name was before Peter? Simon. Simon. His name used to be Simon. But the Lord changed his name to Peter, and this is kind of why. He said, I tell you, you are Peter. And the name Peter would actually have translated to the word Petra. And the word Petra means rock. Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I won't build Peter's church. I will build my church upon Peter and the apostles. And guess what will happen? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Amen? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You could put hell against the church. And the church is going to win. It's a promise from our Lord Jesus Christ. The gates of hell cannot prevail. So I want you to picture this, okay? I want you to picture this little scene. Does anyone know what that rock is? What is it? The Rock of Gibraltar. I found a picture of the Rock of Gibraltar. I've never been there. Where is the Rock of Gibraltar? Is it in Italy? I want you to picture down here are all the, the pursuits of man upon the earth, okay? Businesses, and, and riches, and fame, and fortune, and happiness, and pleasure. And then I want you to picture this big old rock. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church upon the rock. And yes, of course, the main rock, the primary rock, is Jesus himself. But he was going to build it upon Peter and the apostles. And he says, this is going to outlive every single institution and thing upon this earth. It's going to be built upon the rock, and it's going to last for all of eternity. While all the vain pursuits of man are one day removed, the church is going to live on and on and on. In fact, the promise that we're given, and it's hard to find a picture of the gates of hell for reasons you can only imagine, um, but I did my best. And that's probably not what it looks like, and I, I hope to never find out what it looks like. But let's picture that these are the gates of hell, okay? And according to Jesus' promise, this this would be us, okay? This is the church, and this would probably be the gospel. And it's interesting, that verse, because you put a gate up as a defense mechanism, Do do you not? You put a gate to keep somebody out. But according to the promise that Jesus gave us, the church has this battering ram called the gospel, and it's going to take down the very gates of hell. And many of you, most of you here, have, have been brought out of the darkness, have been brought out of the domain of the devil, and have been brought into the light. And why is that? Because the church prevailed against the gates of hell. It's happened in our lives, and it will continue to happen all over this world. And so what we are investing here in the church is the greatest investment of all time. Jesus has told us the very, the, the very gates of hell will lose against the church. If we stay committed to this church and stay invested in this church, then we will take down the gates of hell. And that's a remarkable promise to understand. And so even that trip that Sierra and her classmates are about are all about advancing the kingdom of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ and taking down those very gates. And that's a remarkable thing to know. Well, there's a confusion about the church today. And before we go forward into what the church is, we need to understand what the church is not. And I'm going to let you know that I've been confused for the bulk of my life about the church. There are many concepts about the church that are floating out around there, but often, many times, they aren't biblical. And so, what I want to do before I go forward in what the church is, is I want to tell you what the church is not. And hopefully, many of you will already agree with this, but I want to represent this scripturally so we understand this comes right out of the Word of God. The church is not a building. Did you know that? It's often called a building. But the church is not a building. It's also not a service. We are having a service here, and that's, that's a good thing. But this service that we're doing is also not the church. The church is also not just the leaders. We can be part of the church, but the leaders are not the church by themselves. It's also not a club. Okay, Just something you join because you need something to do on a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night and whenever we have a fun activity and just a place to eat food, uh, even though we have really yummy food. That's not what the church is. The church is also, according to Scripture, not the final authority. Okay? So we need to remove these things from our mind. And I know this is hard. I do. Because it's like a habit you've done for so long in your life that you've called something like this the church. And I hear this all the time. In fact, I catch myself still doing it. I will meet you at the church. I'm, Janine, I'm just about to leave the church. I have to go pick something up at the church. What do I mean? I mean this building right here. But according to the Word of God, that's not the church. And maybe to you that sounds like no big deal, that we would call the church a building instead of what it actually is, the people. But I want you to imagine if you use that with anyone else close in your life, anyone that you love, if one day you used a slip of the tongue and you actually happened to call them a building instead of who they really are. I would never try that with my wife. That wouldn't go well. (laughs) And say, oops, honey, I forget. Sometimes I forget that you're not a building. Well, the church is not a building. And and I don't know what the problem is, is maybe we don't have really a term for the church building. Like back in the day, they would have called it the synagogue or the temple. And today, because we don't really have a specific name for the church building, we end up calling it the church. But it's not the church. The building is simply a building that the church can gather in. So even though we love our little building here, and we're thankful to the Lord for it, it is not the church. If this building one day did not exist, the church would go on. Amen? Because the church is the people of God. The church is also not just the worship service. Okay, Now these people, again, can be a part of the church, and that's a good thing, but what they're doing here is also not the church, because the church can meet without a formal service. And we try to do that on Wednesday. There are small groups that meet, and some of you meet in coffee shops and gather together as the church, but there's no formal service, because the formal service is not the church. So when we say things like, man, wasn't church really good today, and... I'm really glad I went to church today. What we really should mean is I'm glad I got to be with the people of God. Although the service is a good thing as well. (laughs) Now that's a handsome guy up there, isn't it? But I have to tell you, and I have to be very transparent, that this man also, without the rest of you, is not the church. And often, sometimes we think of the leaders as the church. Now look at this poor little cup holderless pastor up here. This is from my former ministry, Joel. You could tell I was trying to fumble my coffee cup up there while I preach, and you could tell I don't have a really good countenance on my face. Um, I needed a cup holder right here to hold that thing. Thankfully, I do today. Um, But the pastor, the leaders, are not the church without the body of Christ. The church is also not just a hangout or a club that we go to, okay? Something to do to spend time and eat together and fellowship together. It's not just something to join and be a part of. It's not just community. It's something much more profound. And the church is also not the final authority, is it? The final authority authority is who? God himself. Man does not dictate the things and the will of God. God himself dictates the will of God. And where do we find that? We find that in his scripture. We find that from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So this also is not the church unless it represents what God has said. And we need to understand that before we go forward so that we understand the right things about what is the church because that's what we're going to look at now. What is the church? If it's none of those things and it's something really important, let's talk about now what the church is. (coughs) (coughs) Is anyone getting inspired by that picture? Now, this is probably, even though it's not, um, a picture of where I was in my early 20s, maybe late teens. Um, I grew up in the church, spent most of my time in the church. My parents were ministers, as long as I can remember. And I remember going to almost every church event there possibly was. I'm going to be honest, I didn't like it. I didn't really like church. I didn't really understand church, and therefore I didn't appreciate church. And so I would take any possible chance I could to avoid going to church. If I was sick or there was a snow day, I kind of looked forward to that. Because I didn't appreciate the church. And you know what happens when you're ignorant about something that's really profound is you need knowledge before you can appreciate it. Now this is me. And uh, (laughs) see those biceps? It's clearly me. Um, This is my feeling towards the church. And it really is. You would think I'm a pastor because that's just a calling. And that's true. It is a calling from God. But I also love the church. My perspective has changed because my knowledge and appreciation of the church came right out of the word of God. What I once thought was the church is not the church. And therefore, once I dug up what the actual church is, my perspective changed about the church. And I'm hoping for those sitting here who might have the wrong perspective, still hanging on in your life, that perhaps we can help change that today to understand what the church really is. I'm going to give you some stats. My dad was big on statistics. And so I dug up a little stats about church and Christianity. And this is what I found. There are about 332 million people living in the United States right now. That's a lot of people. 63% of people, according to the stat I found, identify as Christians. It's about 210 million people. That is a lot of people who identify themselves as Christians. In fact, 140 million of those are what we would call Protestant Christians. Okay, Ones that we would say are founding their church upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. 140 out of 332 million people in our country claim to be born-again Christians. Now, that's just under half. If that is true, why do you think America is still so dark? That is a lot of Christians. That is a lot of light. right? If I put half of my house in light, most I can see everything in the entire house. But unfortunately, our country, our nation, our world is still very, very dark. In fact, it might be getting worse. It might be getting darker. Why is that? If there are so many people that are a part of this church and a part of Christianity, Why does America still seem so dark? And I believe it's because we don't really understand what the church is. In fact, we have another problem that's happening today. And we have an enemy, and you have to understand that. And the enemy is all about redefining, is he not? Taking things that God says are mine and redefining those words. So that once we understand the church in a different way, we start calling anything we want to church. And we just start putting up four walls. We have people come to it, and then we say anything, we do anything, and we put God's name upon it, and we put the title church upon it. The problem is, is that's not the church. The church is only what the Lord Jesus Christ calls the church. So if you and me, as a part of Crossroads Church, are not doing what Jesus has taught us to do, we too do not have a church. No matter what we call it, we do not get to redefine God's terms and recreate God's institutions and that's happening all over our world. There are churches and pastors that are not churches and are not pastors because they do not represent what Christ said about himself and about his church. So what is it? Well, I could give you my theories and my thoughts about the church and I can put those, you know, using logic and academia, but I don't want to. I want to give you the understanding of what the church is right out of the scripture. And there are three things that I could find primarily about what the church is out of Scripture. And we want to take time today and talk about all of these. The first one is a body. The second one is a bride. And the third one is a family. And probably you're all familiar with these by now. And that's okay. Maybe it's just a reminder today. But for those of you who aren't, I want you to understand the biblical concept of church. These are going to come right out of Scripture. So let's start simply with a body. Okay? Think about your own body. Now the body has... Now in this picture I was able to find... Someone was identifying the body parts of the body and it came up with 30, 30 body parts. But I'm gonna have to tell you today, there are a lot more than 30, right? There's a lot more than 30 body parts. Well, what's interesting about the body is although it's made out of many different members and parts, it has one single unit. In fact, this guy on the right is representing that. He has all of his body parts working for the same goal of getting in shape and doing some push ups. So his arms, his legs, his head, his eyes, his back. Everything is included in the same goal, even though it's full of many body parts. They do not work independently. They work as one common goal. And think about your human hand. The human hand alone has 27 bones, 27 joints, and over 100 ligaments. But most of the times throughout the day, I'm doing one unified thing with all of those ligaments, all of those bones, all of those joints. Because that's how the hand is created. To work together together. If your hand is fighting your hand, go see a doctor. Okay? That's not a good thing. If your body parts are fighting each other, go see a doctor. We have an issue. Because it's supposed to work together. It's one unit, even though it's many parts. And we get that metaphor from Scripture. Paul at 1 Corinthians 12 said this. For just as the body, and he's using a metaphor here, okay? Is one. And has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So we have many equaling one. Many parts coming together. He says this is what the church is like. So it is with Christ. They drink of one spirit. Many members, many members, many different backgrounds, many different upbringings, many different perspectives from many different parts of the world, all coming together at Crossroads Church for one goal, to be one body, to serve one Lord in one spirit. For in one spirit we were all baptized, there's one again, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. And there's the concept. Although we are many, although we are different people, different personalities, different backgrounds, we all make up one body, one body, one unit that God calls his church. We are brought together to be unique individually, but together we are supposed to be unified in our goal. For if one member suffers, all suffer together. Because it's one unit. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, the church, and individually members of it. And there's that concept again of many equaling one. And this we understand even with our own bodies, right? Now if you've ever hurt a part of your body, like I did one time pull my back really badly, guess how much of my body was suffering? All of it. My entire body was suffering because my one little area of my lower back was in pain. Therefore, my hands suffered, my feet suffered, my whole body suffered, my eyes suffered. The whole body was laying down for many days because of one single part of my body getting injured. Right, And so that happens. You'll understand that when you get injured, is the whole body is unfortunately affected because it's one unit. Even though it's many members, it doesn't mean like, hey, back, why didn't you take the day off? The rest of us are going to go to the store, okay? You stay here, get the rest you need, and the rest of us are going to go do our chores. That doesn't work that way. If the back is down, the whole body is down. If the back is strong and the rest of the body parts are strong, then it's all strong. (laughs) Now, sometimes it says in Scripture that we often give glory to the most prominent body parts, and again, it's a metaphor, meaning we give prominence to the leaders and the preachers and the pastors, and we forget sometimes the common people of the church. But he said you wouldn't do that if it was your body. If you hurt your finger, again, your whole body suffers. I don't know exactly what's going on in picture number two there. But he got stabbed in the eye with a paper airplane, his own paper airplane. Um, And then the third guy's walking on coals. It doesn't seem to be having too bad of a a time there. But um, if one small body part hurts, the whole body hurts. And I hope you don't have to try that to believe me, okay? Don't go home and stab yourself in the eye with a paper airplane. Or hit yourself with a hammer. Take my word for it. And remember the last time you got hurt that the whole body was suffering because one part went down. We like hiking around here, and so there's many times and opportunities to hike, and which is a good thing. But hiking kind of represents this, this situation as well. When someone goes hiking, they take all their body parts. All their body parts are working together. The legs, the feet, the arms, the muscles, the joints, the eyes. And it's all doing it for one goal, to go up the mountain. So although there's many members, they're all working towards the same goal. And that is exactly the metaphor of the church. But the metaphor is kind of the other way. The body is a metaphor for the church. The church is the real body. And the body that we have as our bodies are, are shadows of that. Now I want you to imagine if you had a to-do list much like this. Again, would you sit down with all your body parts and say, raise your hand, who wants to go and do these things with me today? I need to go to the grocery store, I need to get a haircut, take out the garbage, pay bills, and clean out the fridge. Uh, Let's divvy some tasks here. Who wants to do the first one? Obviously the hair is going to go to the second one. No, the the problem is you take the entire body with you because that is how God has created this thing to work together. So in order to do these tasks, the entire body must function as one unit. And so he says, regarding the church, if the church is supposed to operate the way it's supposed to operate... You must be unified. You must work together. When the church fights each other, when the church bickers and, and goes after one another, and some are serving and some are sitting down, the entire body's not supposed to work because that's not how God is created. It. He says, just as one body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Christ, Jesus, physically is not here anymore, but his body is here. That is his church. We are now the members of Christ here upon the earth and now we are functioning all together as Christ here upon the earth because Jesus has left us with that grand mission. But in order to do that very thing, we must work together. We cannot have 10%, 20%, 30% serving and the rest lying down because that means the entire body is suffering. The entire body is not doing what we should do. So we cannot go two different directions, can we? If some of the church is going over here and the other church is going over there, the whole thing is supposed to not work because one body cannot do that. You cannot pick two different directions. If we're all going to follow Jesus, we all go together. And if we're going to follow anything else, then we will all do it together. But we have to make our choice and we have to be unified in that task to follow what the Lord has said and to lay everything else aside. And the question is, will we? Will we function as the body because that is how the church was made Because we have to keep moving fast, we're going to go to the second one that Jesus calls the church. He says it's like a bride. A bride. I want you to picture an actual bride. And some of us can't really imagine what that's like, but some of you can. My bride can. Um, But again, this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. And we're not supposed to picture, we're not supposed to get too literal here, okay, using our word. Because if we get too literal thinking about an actual bride, we can misunderstand what the Lord is, is offering us today. But he says, "The church is much like a bride. In Revelation 19, this is a prophecy about the kingdom of heaven. John was oops, I've got to see there. John was able to look behind the curtain and see what was going on in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, in verse six of Revelation 19, that I heard what seemed to be a voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, "Hallelujah for the Lord." Our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's going to be a powerful worship service in heaven, is it not? Powerful worship service as we all gather under one name, under one person for the same goal of speaking praise and honor to our Lord. But notice what it says in verse 7 Let us, the church, rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Now, who's it talking about? Obviously, hopefully we know the Lamb is who? Jesus. Jesus. And there's a marriage ceremony that is coming between the Lamb and his bride. Well, who is his bride? Somebody already said it. It's the church. The church and the Lamb of God are going to be brought together in an eternal union one day. And thankfully, we've already talked about this, the covenant represents that eternal union. That covenant has already started. But the marriage ceremony has not taken place yet. But one day, the Lamb of God, Christ, will be gathered together with his church. Now, of course, Christ himself is the bridegroom. And we are represented as the bride. And so we're brought together in this eternal union, this eternal covenant. And again, don't think too literally. It has nothing to do with being feminine or anything like that. It's simply the roles. And so God created these roles upon the earth, man and woman, to represent this relationship between Christ and his church and he says it was granted to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure because she's preparing herself to meet Jesus for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints now brides who have been married you will understand this there's a preparation process Okay. now fortunately my wife is very fast at getting ready these days Okay. we have 8 kids so Janine can get ready in 15 seconds it's quite amazing but I remember back when we were married, it took her several hours to get ready. Right? Was it several hours? I'm getting a face back there. I think guys, guys can do it 12 minutes flat. Um, but I remember that process, not even just for the preparation of the, of the gown, but the preparation of the day. It took a lot of work to get that day together. And I remember, we have pictures of it where Janine has put her gown on and she's with her bridesmaids and they're taking pictures together and it's, it's it's, it's a representation of this. They're getting themselves prepared for the day that that she would be married to her husband. And in Scripture, we find this concept very clearly. We're not with our Lord yet. We are in this preparation process. So Jesus says this phrase to us, Be holy. Be holy, for your bridegroom is holy. And one day the two are going to be wed together in this eternal covenant of love. And so he says, Right now is your preparation phase for that day. The marriage ceremony is to come, and right now I want you to prepare yourself for the coming together of the Lamb and his church. And therefore we are to strive to be holy in all our conduct. Because that's what our bridegroom is. If you keep reading in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is speaking. And what he's doing in Ephesians 5 is he's giving instruction for a godly marriage. So any of those who want to understand what a godly marriage looks like, all you need to do is look at Ephesians 5. And he gives you instruction. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, you can tell there's something deeper there. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You can gloss over that part if you're not careful and just think it's just about instructions for a proper marriage, and it is. But of course there's something deeper because he goes on in verse 31 to say this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, one unit, not able to be separated, not easily. And he says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Did you know that? Did you know marriage was instituted simply to reflect The parallel relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So one of the reasons we need to have a godly marriage is because it's right and honorable to the Lord. It's how you keep a good family together. When we strive to have a godly marriage, we honor the Lord by pleasing him the way he has taught us. But the second and more grander reason why we need to keep our marriages together and godly is because of what it represents. It represents something quite profound and quite incredible. It is a picture to this world of Christ's relationship with his church. How the church prepares themselves to meet the bridegroom one day. How Christ himself is faithful and loyal and loving to his church to help them prepare themselves for that day. So when we abuse the relationship between man and woman or husband and wife in this relationship, we not only abuse the picture of earthly marriage, we abuse the picture of eternal marriage. Because Christ is going to keep his covenant. We talked about that. And he expects his wife and his bride to do the same. So in a lot of marriages, you'll see this if you've been to many weddings. I've been to over a dozen weddings. In fact, I've been in, I think, ten weddings. I have seen many of these things, and maybe you guys have as well. They'll often have something that represents unity. Maybe a unity rope that the hands are tied together. Or a unity candle that two candles come together and and light one candle, or there's even unity sand, they pour together into one vessel. And it represents that two are coming together for one, one flesh. Now, you could separate two parties, you can. You could separate two business partners, you could separate two friends, but you cannot separate one flesh very easily. And that one flesh is representing Christ in the church. When Christ comes together with his bride, they are one and they will be one forever. And so he says, I'm going to institute this relationship between a man and a woman on earth, and it's going to represent this eternal union I desire to have with my bride. That I hold to her and she holds to me forever, for the rest of eternity. In Matthew 25, we have a parable. And maybe you guys have read this before. This parable represents this concept as well. In Matthew 25, it says, Then the kingdom, starting in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven which again, there's a very strong relationship and correlation between the kingdom of heaven and the church, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And I don't have time to read this whole story, but you know what happens, right? Five of them have oil for their lamps and five of them don't. Well, the bridegroom tarries and it takes a little longer than they expected. And so all the ten virgins fall asleep. And then there's a shout, there's an announcement that the bridegroom is on his way and then all ten virgins wake up and five have oil because he came at night and they light their lamps and they go to meet the bridegroom and five of them don't have any oil and they can't go meet their bridegroom because they can't light their way. While they were going to buy their oil so they could meet the bridegroom, the bridegroom came. Who is the bridegroom? Jesus. And those who were ready... Remember the preparation process? Went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. This preparation process that we're doing now is not a small deal. It's a very big deal. Because as Christ's bride, we should understand that there's a relationship of faithfulness and covenantal love being displayed here. And our job is very simple. Make ourselves ready to meet the bridegroom prepare ourselves for the day when our Lord Jesus comes back to gather his church unto himself. And so we are now in that preparation process. And I remember when I started that covenant relationship with my wife, and apparently we got married in the 40s or something like that based on the old... <laughs> Pat, that picture looks really old. Um, we've only been married about 14 years, okay? We weren't married in the 40s. But I remember that day, and look how much hair I had back then. Man, it's like an afro. What's going on back there? Um... But we've had this relationship for going on 14 years now. And it's, it's a relationship, you know, of some up and downs. It's a relationship that takes work. But it's a relationship that represents Christ and his church. It's a very important picture. It's an important picture to represent to the world that we live in. Because the world that we live in is selfish about just about everything. They take, pick and choose from things that they want, and they leave the rest. But when we're representing the picture between Christ and his church, we have to do that very properly. And I'm thankful to say that I have a loving bride just as Christ has a loving bride, and she has a loving husband, just as our, our bridegroom is a loving husband. And thankfully, those two units work on staying together and being godly together. And that's what the church is. We are now the bride of Christ, and we're preparing ourselves to meet that bridegroom one day. And it's the Lord himself who made these promises in Scripture. In Hosea chapter 2, he says, I will betroth you, church, to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. It says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, isn't that someone you want to be in a relationship with? Someone that says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And thankfully, that's what this church is. We have an opportunity to be with our Lord, to have this covenantal relationship from now until forever. And that is why the church is so profound. But it's also profound because it's a family. The church is also a family. Now I want you to think about your family, okay? Your family is full of many complex people, okay? Some are alike and some are not alike. But the family is one unit. It functions like a unit. Think about your specific family that you live with. You all live under the same roof. Right, You're all different people, but you're all brought under one roof for one mission to operate as a family. And this, again, is a metaphor for the church. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says this, Let us, the church, consider how to stir one another to love and good works. There's the preparation process. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. You guys ever have one of those family reunions and there's always one person who doesn't come? You know, always one person who has an excuse. Hey, you still planning on coming to my performance tonight? Ah, I wish I could, but I don't have too much studying to do. There's always one person that can't make it, right? Because they don't understand the concept and the importance of a family. But he says, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day. drawing near. What day? The day the The day of the Lord. The marriage ceremony. The day of the Lord is drawing near. We are in this preparation process. We are a body. We are a bride. But we are also a family. And he says, let's encourage one another to gather. For love and good works. For charity and kindness and holiness. And he says in Galatians 2, carry one another's burdens. Because this is a team. You're all ascending up the hill together. And therefore, we're a family. You don't let a family lag behind, a family member be disconnected. You help the entire family unit get where the family needs to go. This is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture. It's not often that Jesus speaks this way, but in Matthew 12, a very interesting situation happens. Jesus was speaking to his people, his disciples, and it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Okay, Mary and his brothers. We're seeking to speak to Jesus, but he's talking to the people. He's ministering. And so someone comes and says, Jesus, your family wants to talk to you. Take a little break with the people and come and speak to your your actual family because your actual family wants to speak to you. What do you think Jesus' response is? He says this in verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and my brothers? That had to be a weird statement to hear. (laughs) Going, haven't you met them? I'm pretty sure you met them, Jesus. Uh, I can reintroduce you if you need to, but they're right here. You know them. He says, "Who is my mother and who are my brothers?" And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers." And again, don't think too literally. But what he's basically telling everyone there today is, "My family are those who do my will. My family are those who who understand this covenant of love and join this union together. It's not just the physical family that I have out here upon the earth. It's my disciples. It's those who follow me. It's those who love me. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. For how long? Eternity. Your family here upon the earth, including your spouse, is an earthly institution. They will not always be your actual earthly family for the rest of eternity. But the people sitting here in these chairs will be. If they all are under Jesus Christ and all believe in him and all follow him, these people in this room will be our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Jesus is teaching us that the church is the most profound relationship there ever has been. It's more profound than a husband and a wife because it's eternal. It's more profound than a family. It's more profound than the physical body because it's eternal and because it's based upon Jesus Christ and it's never going away. So you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope that's okay. I'm never going anywhere. So you better get used to me. And vice versa. We're going to be with each other for a long, long time. And that should be a blessing because that relationship is strong and secure under Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, when the early church met, okay, this is right after the church had been established, they did something remarkable that you don't see very often. In Acts 2, it says, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, they weren't coerced there. Guys, you really should start to come to church more. No, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which we just did, and the prayers. And guess what happened? Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were... Together and in all things in common. This is not talking about communism, okay? This is, this is something they chose to do. This is something they desired to do, to come together as one unit and serve the same God at the same time for the same purpose. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Why? Why would they do such a thing? Because they were one. And they were one under Jesus. And their goal was very simple. Do his will. Follow our Lord. Prepare ourselves to meet our bridegroom one day. Why would we not work together? That's when we're strong. When we work together, when we gather together, when we make this a priority, that's when we're strong. That's when the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And day by day, look what happened because of this early church. Attending the temple together, okay, day by day, not just once or twice a week. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And guess what the Lord did? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why? Because they got it. They got it. They understood it's a body. One body working together. They understood it's a bride. One bride preparing herself to meet the bridegroom. They understood it is a family all coming together for one common goal. And I want to encourage you that way, to remember, we're on the same team here, okay? We don't fight and bicker and scatter about in this church. We work together for the same common goal. We're under the same Lord for the same purpose for the rest of eternity. And this church that we talk about today is a very strong unit. It's so strong, it's impervious to the devil, if it does it the right way. And that's what families are supposed to do as well, aren't they not? Families come together and they help each other. They contribute. They support each other. They go through griefs together. They celebrate together. They do all things together. And that's what the church is supposed to do better than anybody. We're supposed to function as a family. And there's a picture of my family. Now, we have a very big family. But thankfully, I'm I'm in a family that supports one another, that prays for each other, that helps each other. And that's why I'm able to do what I'm able to do, because I have that structure that God always pictured of Christ and the church. Um, And it's just a beautiful picture of what we're supposed to be. But before we end today, we're going to answer this question: Why? And we're going to answer this quickly. Why do we need the church? Why can't I just function on my own? Why can't I just be my own boss? Why can't I be an island? Why can't I do whatever I want in this world? Why do I need the church? Well, without the body, you're like a body part on its own. You're disjointed. And if you're a disjointed body part, what can you accomplish? What can you accomplish for God? And the answer is, absolutely nothing. As strong as a back can be, as strong as your arms can be, as strong as your voice can be, if they're all disconnected from one another, they're nothing. They're useless. They're pointless. Without the body of Christ, if we try to do this on our own, we fail miserably because we're supposed to fail. I'm competent as a speaker, but I'm not competent as a church on my own, am I? I need my entire brothers and sisters coming together together. To serve my Lord and to help me and vice versa. Why do we need the church? Because if we're not the bride, guess what? We have no future with the bridegroom. You notice what happens on the last day. He invites his bride into the gates and when what happens to the door? It's shut. Why would you have a door and why would it be shut? To keep everyone else out. And to keep your bride and your family in. What's interesting is one of the last things I do before we go to bed in our house is I, I lock the door. I lock the door to keep any intruders out, and I lock the door to keep my family safe. On the last day, the only ones that are invited into the kingdom of God are the bride of Christ. The ones who have loved him, the ones who have entered into that covenant, the ones who have spent time preparing themselves to meet the bridegroom. Without the church, we have no future with Jesus Christ. And the door will be shut and will be left on the outside. And I know nobody wants to be a part of that. Why do we need the church? Because if we're not a part of the family, we miss out on all the blessings reserved (coughs) only for the family. Now, I won't say this. I I love other people, and I love other families, and I love other people's children. But I reserve special blessings for my own family, special blessings for my own children, that only my own children get. Because they're my children. Even discipline. I don't discipline other people's kids. I would be locked up. Right? (laughs) Right? but I have special tender love that I give to my family because they're my family. Well, God does the same thing. He has blessings that he has created that are only specific for his family. They're not given to common man. Common man gets sunlight. Common man gets rain. Common man does not get the Holy Spirit. Common man does not get the gathering of the church. Common man does not get the understanding of Scripture. Who does that go to? It goes to the family of God. That's why we need the church. Here's one last reason why we need the church. Without the church, we cannot and we will not become like Jesus. It can't happen. It won't happen. And if you've ever tried to go on your own, you realize it's a miserable process because you can go nowhere fast. And not only are we walking, not only are we hiking, but guess what metaphor we've used over and over again. We are scaling a very, very high mountain. And here at the top is our grandest goal that we're going to come back to. Christ-likeness. And in order to get up that mountain, we have to help one another because that mountain is too steep. It's too treacherous. It's too costly. It's too dangerous. And it's never meant to be scaled alone. So the Lord says, yes, you have a very high mountain to climb, but guess what you're going to be doing? You're going to be climbing together as one unit, working together, helping each other, supporting each other, praying for each other, carrying each other's burdens so that every single one of you can get up that mountain together. And without each other, You won't. You won't. You'll fail miserably. Because that's how God has created this thing. So what is the church? It's a body. It's a bride and it's a family. And I want to remind you of how we started this lesson today when Jesus said this beautiful promise. I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. This is not our church. This is not Pastor Todd's church. This is Christ's church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If we do this his way, if we gather together, if we come together as one unit to support, to help carry each other's burdens, to fight together, to pray together, to stand with each other, the devil himself cannot conquer us. In fact, we will conquer him. We will knock down those gates with the battering ram of the gospel. And that is the grand mission of the church, part one. We will talk about part two Next week, Lord willing, we will talk about how to become the church, and we will talk about what is that grand mission and how to accomplish. I hope you've been encouraged by this foundation building. Let's bow in prayer as we give this over to the Lord. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for what you've taught us today that maybe we did know and maybe it was new to us a little bit. Father, I thank you for what you brought me into, specifically this wonderful church body here in Littleton. And I thank you that I can be a part of this. But Father, I also thank you for my brothers and sisters who I've realized a long time ago I can't do this without them. And I don't plan to. I plan for all of us to understand this concept today that we are the church, we've been purchased by the blood of Christ, and we have great, a great task before us and a very big privilege. But help us understand, Father, that we need the grace of God, we need the strength of God, and we need each other to accomplish this task. Thank you for this reminder today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll sing one more.